if how God has been leading continues to work, um, I've got really, really, really good news for you. Um, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, about five weeks ago, I mentioned in a message on Obadiah um, that the word Hamas means violence. About a week after that, Hamas attacked Israel. Um, last week, when I was preaching through Zephaniah, um, I was able to highlight that Zephaniah talks about Gaza, which is in our news today as well. Um, the relevance of today's message in Haggai is really a message about prioritizing uh, your life and, and what's going on in your, in your life and how you prioritize that. Um, boy, God seems to be setting things up in, in just a, a way that makes it really relevant for me to teach. Next week, I'm going to preach through Zechariah. Zechariah is all about the return of the Lord. So you got about eight days, okay? you got about eight days, and then I think he's coming back. Uh, I'm not really making a prediction. I'm just saying if the pattern continues, Zechariah's got the Lord coming back, coming down, Mount of Olives, splits open, everything changes. So about eight days, get yourself, get yourself straight. Uh, let me talk about Haggai. Um, the book of Haggai is not about a church building campaign. I know it gets used that way many times. It's not about a church building campaign. Um, it is a message about priorities. So let me just be uh, open with you up front. The Bible never tells the New Testament church to build a building. Doesn't mean buildings are bad. We use buildings as a tool to do what Christ actually told us to do. Um, but the, the people who are receiving the message of Haggai, they are being told to build a building. We've never been told to build a building. So I'm not going to ask you to, to build a building. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to prioritize doing what Christ told us to do that has everything to do with his presence with us. But I also need to highlight that this is a post-exilic prophet. Okay? I'm going to orient you to this a number of times today. Let me just talk. As we've been going through the prophets... Um, there are a whole group of, of prophets that are pre-exilic, some to the northern kingdom in Israel, some to the southern kingdom in Judah. And they are preaching, telling the people, judgment is coming if you don't straighten up. Um, and then they don't straighten up. Judgment comes to the northern kingdom, then to the southern kingdom, and then they are in exile. And while they are in exile, there are two prophets, we've already talked about them, that are exilic, Ezekiel and Daniel. They prophesy while they are in exile. We have made it to the last three books of the Old Testament, and these three are called post-exilic prophets. They are prophets that are prophesying after the nation has been in exile for 70 years. And today we're going to focus on the first of those post-exilic prophets, Haggai. I'm setting this in kind of the world scene, just set up the world scene. Um, there was a period of time where the Assyrians were, were dominant in the world. They were pushed out by the Babylonians, and it's during that Babylonian period that the southern kingdom is taken into that exile that lasted 70 years. While they are in exile, the Persians push out the Babylonians, and the Persians are then going to say to the Jews who'd been taken into exile, you can go back. And there's this um, very um, magnanimous king, although it's part of their, their uh, foreign policy, he's going to allow them to go back and to, to build their temple, which is really what they want to do. And Haggai is going to prophesy during that time. Okay? So Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they are post-exilic prophets. These three books all hang together. 
in a specific period of time. And I've got some resources out at the Connection Center. One by Danny Hayes is an introduction to the post-exilic prophets. And then I've got a, a chart of the period where I put it together. I'm going to put that one back up there in just a little bit. I've got two other resources in addition to our chart on uh, Haggai that is out there. And uh, one of them is really on just the background material and all the political situation that's going on. And then one of them focuses on chapter 3. Um, and particularly the last three verses of chapter three, the last three verses of the, of the book, there's only two chapters, um, and it focuses on unraveling some things that are fairly complex there that I won't be able to completely unravel, but it's a great resource for that. So we're going to jump into the book of Haggai, which really focuses on um, doing what God has asked you to do because of his glory, okay? Um, Bruce Wilkinson says this, with the Babylonian exile now history, and a newly returned group of Jews back in the land, the work of rebuilding the temple can now begin. But 16 years after the process has begun, the people have yet to finish the project, for their personal affairs have interfered with God's business. Haggai preaches a fiery series of sermons, four of them, designed to stir up the nation to finish the temple. He calls the builders to renewed courage in the Lord, renewed holiness in life, and renewed faith in God who controls the future. Um, their project is a building project, but that's because of the presence of the Lord that should be in that building. And God promises to be with them while they do that. Our project is a little bit different. We'll get to that. Let's look at what's going on in the book of Haggai. Uh, Danny Hayes summarizes it this way. The central concern of Haggai is to rebuild the temple. When the exiles returned to Jerusalem, the temple still lies in ruins. Haggai criticized the people for building nice houses for themselves while neglecting to rebuild God's house. This, the prophet proclaims, reflects a distorted view of worship and service. Haggai encourages the people to rebuild the temple, and they obediently carry out this project. Within the prophets, by the way, this is one of the few books that has been effective. Uh, Jonah was effective, but not even with God's people. Um, in fact, God's prophet was not very on board with the project that he was asked. Um, Haggai and Zechariah are effective in calling the people to be involved in what God asks them to do. So who is this guy named Haggai? We know nothing about Haggai's parents, his ancestry, his tribal origin. We don't know where he's from. We don't know anything. Along with Habakkuk and Zechariah, he's simply identified as a prophet. That's really all we know. Although we do have some narratives about him, Ezra mentioned that through the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, the Jewish exiles resumed and completed the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem between 520 and 515. The Jews were able to come back in 536, and they started building the temple, but it stopped. There's a number of reasons for that. It stops, and Haggai and Zechariah are the guys that Ezra says help them motivate people to finish building the temple. So when is this written? Haggai dated all of his messages more precisely than any other book in the Old Testament. In the second year of King Darius of Persia, um, in 520 BC, we know exactly when this happens. Um, he, he dates it in such a way that we know the, the exact date. Ezekiel and Daniel, who were the exilic prophets, are probably already dead at this time. Haggai's ministry spanned less than four months. He prophesies these four messages over four months from the first day of the sixth month to the 24th day of the ninth month. We can easily calculate that, and we know that it started on August 29th of 520 BC, and his last message was December 18th of 520. So from the fall to just before the end of the year for us, during that four-month period, 
Haggai is going to preach these four messages. Um, I'm going to put some big picture back together for you as we're overviewing the Bible. Ezra 1 through 6 is going to talk about this period of time when Zerubbabel brings all of the people back. And with Zerubbabel, um, they begin to build the temple, Haggai and Zechariah, with this first return. And there's about 50,000 people who come back with them. Uh, They begin to build the temple. And then it slows down. Basically, what has happened is Cyrus, who was funding the project, he dies and his son uh, comes to power and he's not funding it anymore. So they're having to, um, to, to work on the project with their own resources. And, and what happens is they stop doing that to build their own houses. Um, Haggai and Zechariah deliver these messages that allow the people to come back and they actually do finish building the temple. Then Ezra's going to lead a revival, meanwhile Esther's queen back in Persia. Then there's going to be a period of about 14 years until Nehemiah comes back and Nehemiah's going to build the walls. I'm going to make a point I made before when I was preaching through those narrative books. If you're going back to your homeland, if any of us were in the room strategically planning, we would build the walls to make ourselves safe and then we would build the temple inside. Okay? That is not what God does. God says, build the temple because that's what keeps you safe. Build the temple first. His presence is really the thing that keeps them safe. Um, This is an old chart. Back when we were doing the historical books, we talked about how these 11 books um, tell the narrative story of the Old Testament. And all the way up until the exile is carried through Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. That story, particularly of the kingdoms, is retold with a more optimistic viewpoint. All of that there is very realistic. Um, it, it really even kind of highlights the failures of everybody along the way. First and Second Chronicles retells the story, but basically says, but God's, God's going to finish his task. Then what's going to happen is Ezra and Nehemiah are going to finish out the storyline of the Old Testament. They're the last two books that if you read through those 11 books, that tells you the storyline. Ezra and Nehemiah finishes the storyline of the Old Testament. Now we're going to focus in on this. Um, this is this 70-year period when um, the Jews are in exile, they're in Babylon, then the Persians push out the Babylonians, and then the Persians say they can return. Ezra and Nehemiah are going to talk about the restoration of the land, and that's that period when Haggai and Zechariah are going to prophesy. They prophesy down here, these post-exilic prophets. So here's basically what's happened. There's been a lot of failure But God has not given up on his people. He still has a project that he needs to do. And that project is eventually to get us to Christ. Um, Again, this is just another way to look at it. Zerubbabel is going to bring them back to build the temple. Ezra is going to reform the people. Nehemiah is going to build the walls. But this is so that the nation can be reestablished after they have been disciplined, all pointing toward bottom right corner, getting us to Christ. A nation is there so that a Messiah can be born, and that Messiah is going to be the embodiment of the presence of God, is actually going to be the Son of God. He's going to be the king of this nation that has now almost been wiped out, but then restored. This king of this nation is going to come, and the problem was everybody was expecting him to come to rule, but he came to redeem. He's going to come back to rule, And between his redemption and his rule, we've been given a tax that has nothing to do with building a building. It has everything to do with taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
And that's the thing I'm going to eventually call you to in this message. Who's the audience of Haggai? Haggai was quite specific about his audience. His first oracle was to Zerubbabel, who was the Jewish governor of Judah, and Joshua the high priest. His second message was to those men and the remnant of people who were around them because they were leading the people. The third oracle was just for the priest. The fourth was for Zerubbabel. And obviously these oracles had a larger audience as well, namely the entire restoration community. And eventually each one of us, as we look at this and we learn these lessons about the priorities they had, their commission was to build a building. That's not our commission, but we do have a commission. So why was Haggai written? Haggai provided the post-exilic community the impetus it needed to complete the rebuilding of the temple between 536 and 515. They started in 536, it kind of wandered down, and then in 520, Haggai and Zechariah deliver their messages, and in 515, they finish the project. Specifically, he called them to prioritize the work of God over their comforts and focus on God's glorious presence among them and the Lord's ultimate rule through a messianic king. Here's what he says. I need you to finish this project because I'm with you. My glory is going to be there, and it's going to be even greater in days to come, and I'm going to send a Messiah who's going to dwell in this temple and Zechariah is going to get way more uh, wrapped up in that whole temple thing. Now I'm going to give you some perspective, okay? I need you to be thinking about um, some things in the Old Testament. Maybe this will put some things together. Maybe this will be old news for you. Um, There are a number of places where God dwells in the Old Testament. It starts off with this tabernacle. The tabernacle is a mobile tent. There's a courtyard to it, but it's a mobile tent and God's presence at the end of the book of Exodus, God's presence goes into that tent. And that is why the whole book of Leviticus is written because it's basically, if God's presence is in that tent and that tent is everywhere we go, how do we live with his presence in there? Because we actually just saw a couple of guys, Nadab and Abihu, make a mistake. Fire came out of the tent and killed them. (laughs) Okay, what are we supposed to do? That's Leviticus. How do God's people live in his holy presence? Eventually, Solomon is going to build this big temple up here. Solomon probably goes overboard with it. I don't think, Solomon doesn't um, build exactly what he's supposed to. He makes it way more grandiose than it should be. It was a, a great monument, but it was grandiose. Then we get to Zerubbabel's temple. I'm going to give you a, a, a problem with it. There's, there's some issues with Zerubbabel's temple. But Zerubbabel's temple was way less um, glorious than, than Solomon's temple. Um, both in Zechariah and back in Ezra, what we read is that when people see Zerubbabel's rebuilt temple, the people who had seen the other one before are crying Um, God even points it out. God is going to, I'm going to show you, he's going to look at this and say, you look at this thing and it's nothing, okay? That Zerubbabel's temple is eventually rebuilt into the temple that is present in Jesus's day called Herod's temple. Herod doesn't tear down Zerubbabel's temple. He just rebuilds and expands it. And basically what he does is on the knob of the hill where there's this two acre spot of land where this temple was, he's going to take and he's going to fill in the, the crest of the hill, he's going to fill it in and build these big walls that are still there today and make a 30-acre platform. And on that 30-acre platform, he's going to expand it to um, the, the models of the temples that if you, look, if you um, search for it on the internet, you're going to get models of Herod's temple. Zerubbabel's temple was way, way less than that. Let me give you a little bit more perspective and add one more temple, okay? Okay. Um, 
you can see on this drawing, there's a football field, okay? Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a, an American football field down at the, the bottom of the, of the drawing. Um, the tabernacle, um, which is right over here, the actual tent would fit in half of the end zone, okay? So the, the tabernacle is a small little thing. Now, you take Solomon's temple, and if you put the whole courtyard in it, um, that whole thing is not even half of a football field, okay? Herod's temple is about three football fields. It's way, 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 way bigger, okay? Particularly the courtyard that he builds all around it. At the end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about this new temple that's going to be built, and a lot of people kind of obsess and they go, oh yeah, there are people who are, you know, tunneling under the Dome of the Rock, you know, there of the Western Wall in Israel, and they're tunneling under, they found the Holy of Holies, and they're getting ready for the temple. Well, that new temple, first of all, it's huge. <laughs> um, the, the grounds for it um, are not 30 acres, that's Herod's temple, which is there now. The platform on the top is 30 acres, that's Herod's temple. The grounds for it are 700 acres. Something's going to have to change. And actually, it doesn't look like, from what Ezekiel says, that it's built on that dome, that, on that crest. It's built closer to the Mediterranean, about seven miles west. Um, something big's going to have to change for all that to happen. We'll talk about it next week in Zechariah, what all's going to change. This final temple, if it's rebuilt, is going to be massive. The point I'm trying to make here is Zerubbabel's temple is the, one of the smaller things that is built. And this is a drawing of what it may have looked like, but this is really basing it on kind of taking Herod's temple and what he may have looked, worked with. I think the thing you should have in your mind is this. This is probably what these guys were looking at when they rebuilt it. They're looking at something that was pretty stark, um, the first thing they did was they built an altar out in the front. They did that when they first arrived in 536. And that altar, uh, they're using the altar. But they never built the building. They start building the building, and it is very, very disappointing. And because it's kind of disappointing, they kind of give up, and they start working on some other things. So let's start putting all of this together. What's going on in this book? Um, here's how it's, it's set forth. There's a prologue that just gives us that specific dating. It is August 29th. 520 BC. There's going to be two sections to the book. The first is kind of this big challenge to finish the temple. And he tells them very specifically, finish the temple and you're not being prosperous because you're not obeying the Lord. The second message is finish the temple because the glory of, the, of God's presence in this temple should motivate you. Then he's going to say, and you people need to be holy. You need to arrange your life in a holy way so that God can use you to be a witness to the world. And then finally, he's going to look at the very end to God's victory in all of this. Again, I've got a chart out there that connects it. Let me see if I can put all of this together. Here's one sentence that tries to pull the whole book together. Haggai, after Persian king Darius, allowed Jews to return to Israel to rebuild the temple, delivered four messages to Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the priest, the leaders of the returned remnant after the Babylonian captivity, calling them to complete the rebuilding of the temple because God's glory demanded and deserved it, and so they could return to temple worship, and therefore, as an obedient, believing community, they could be blessed by God under the covenants as they await the final conquest and rule. God's going to fulfill his covenants. He's going to do everything he said he would do. Our participation of that is based on our obedience. 
if we will obey, he will use us. We'll get the joy that we've talked about already today, the joy of participation, the joy of seeing it accomplished, the joy of doing what we were designed to do. For them, it was to build a temple. Here's the problem. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The people were going, hey, it's just not, the timing's not good for us right now. Um, all the funding from Cyrus has dried up. Um, kind of his son came into power. Now we've got this new guy, Darius. We don't know what he's going to do for us. It's not time yet for us to do that. Now, that's what they say, and that may be a legitimate thing. We, as we have talked as elders about current economic situation, we've talked about, hey, it's economically trying times. Um, my illustration for that is Dawn and I used to go out to lunch on Fridays, kind of my day off, and we'd go to lunch on Fridays. We could do lunch for $35 or for $25. We can't do it for $40 now. I don't know how you people with a lot of kids survive. Um, it is crazy how things have changed in the last few years. We get that. But that's not the real issue. <laughs> then the, Lord of the, Lord, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And this is what the Lord's perspective is. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? What's your priority here? Is your priority the presence of God and what that presence of God enables you to do? Worship him. Or is your priority your own comforts and your own, um, the things you're working on? They had lost their blessings. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink but you're never full. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You're doing all of the work but God's not blessing it. It's all fading away. You're working hard, you're doing everything you should do, but you don't get to enjoy any of it because God is the one who's taking it away. You expected much, but you see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains in ruins. Now, while each of you is busy with your own house, therefore because of the heavens, um, the, because of this, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the crops and mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else that the ground produces, on people and livestock and all that labor of their hands. And again, it's not about buildings. It's about what God has asked us to do. He gave them a commission to build a building. He never told us to build a building, but he gave us a very clear commission. And the question is, are we prioritizing that commission? The Haggai said, if a person is defiled, this is, I'm going to jump to chapter 2 for just a moment. If a person is defiled by contact with a dead body, uh, touches one of these things, does it become defiled? The priest said, yes, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. They themselves are defiled, so everything that they touch gets defiled. Um, this goes back to the whole book of Leviticus. Um, holiness doesn't uh, travel, but, but unholiness does. And if you're unholy, when you put your hands to do something, it makes that unholy. And God is basically saying, until you, until you purify your life, I, I really actually don't even want you doing this project. But there's a call to action. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build my house. 
so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. The Persians aren't giving you any more resources. So you need to go up in the mountains, cut down the wood, bring it down here, and build the thing. But look at the purpose. So that I may take pleasure in it. That's the word for um, the pleasure of the sweet aroma of sacrifices that go up. So that I might enjoy the sacrifices that are coming up and that I might be honored. It's about honoring God with how you're prioritizing what he's asked us to do. And they're obedient. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jezadok, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They aligned themselves with the Lord. They didn't just feel the guilt and just, oh, yeah, okay, you know, I'm going to stop going to Lowe's to buy stuff for me. I'll go to Lowe's and I'll make a run and take and drop it off at the church. That's not what's going on here. They fear the Lord. They align themselves with God's purposes. And once they're aligned with God's purposes, then they're ready to do what God has asked them to do. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of uh, Joshua, the son of uh, Jezadok, the high priest, And the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. The Lord stirs them up with his spirit. And his spirit causes them, and and that's why I I hope you're not hearing any heavy-handed messages. Um, what What we're asking you to do is listen to what the spirit is stirring up in you. But here's what happened. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jezadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? Look at the building. It's no big deal. Because it's not about the building, folks. It's about the presence of God among them. The building was the place where the presence of God is. I've set all the foundation for everything I want to say today. (laughs) We have a commission. It's not to build a building, but we have another commission. Their building was a place for the presence of God. There's a place for the presence of God today too. And it's in us. So the presence of the Lord Almighty is going to be with them. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Zadok, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I will be with you. I'm with you. Have you ever heard that again? Have you ever heard that in the New Testament? It's around the commission that we've been given. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all the nations will come. Peace. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, the glory of that house, the Lord has just pointed out. The one you're looking at isn't very good. But there's one coming that's going to be. And God says so very clearly, from this day on, I will bless you because you've aligned yourself with my purposes. You're doing what I've asked you to do. You're recognizing my glory is important. You're recognizing that my presence is with you. 
And then he's going to say this, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overthrow royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kings. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. God's going to eventually set everything right. He doesn't actually do that during the time of Zerubbabel or the time of Ezra or the time of Nehemiah or even the time of Jesus. He's going to do it when Jesus comes back, which shoots all of your perspective to the future. And that's why these last verses make sense as a pointing to the future. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I'll take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. I'll make you my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel doesn't become the king. There's some complications about uh, the genealogy of Jesus and um, how it's presented in Matthew and Luke in different ways. It's all in the article out there. Here's what I want to tell you. As you look to the future, this last verse looks to the future of a son of David, a son of Zerubbabel, who's going to be the king. It's going to be in the line of these people. So what do we do with this? Where does all this fit? This is the most clearly historically rooted message in the Old Testament. It provides a clear foundation for us to make specific application as we see specific applications in their setting. We saw exactly what they did, and we don't need to do exactly what they did. We saw exactly what they did, and we need to do exactly what they did because they followed a commission. We don't need to build a building. Haggai's perhaps the clearest and most direct message about stewardship of all of our resources. How you use your time, how you use your talent, how you use your treasures. He's talking about prioritizing everything in your life, not just your... Are you putting the energy in? Are you serving? Um, What are you doing with everything? God has made you a steward of your whole life. It's not just your checkbook, it's your calendar. Look at your calendar. What are you prioritizing? And Haggai ties our behavior to the glory of God. He's worthy of this. So what should we believe? The work of the Lord should be a priority in our life. Very simple. Obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings struggle. You can work really hard for all of those other things, but if you're not obeying the Lord, it's just going to be struggle for you, and you're not even going to be able to enjoy all that you want. And God's glory demands our best. Um, one of the people that I've uh, been blessed to be in the circles of with Operation Christmas Child, Kenny Isaacs, he says this, the quality of our work is the platform of our witness. Think about that for a minute. Not just your work here at church, but your work in your job. The quality of our work is the platform of our witness. How well do you work? So how should we behave? Prioritize the work of God in our day-to-day decisions. Expect the blessing of God within his plans for us. He's going to bless us when we are doing what he's asked us to do and anticipate the ultimate glory of God in his final victory. But I want to pull all this together. I've talked about God's presence, God's glory, and the commissions. Think about it this way. The great commission with a promise of his presence. Sounds exactly like Haggai, by the way. Commission to build a building, I'll be with you. My glory will be there. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. God never told us to build a building, but he did tell us to do this. We've decided a building helps us do that. It's not about the building, it's about the commission. And he said this, I will be with you, just like he told them 
and Haggai's time. If you don't think Haggai's relevant for us, read it again in light of this verse. God also told us this. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit is in us now. The Spirit is not in that building. The Spirit um, was in the building. It left. It came back in Jesus, embodied in Jesus, and then Jesus left us with his Spirit. We are the temple. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. In Jerusalem, people close to you, near you, walking across the room. And in Judea and Samaria, people who are like you, (laughs) but it takes a little bit more effort walking across the street and to the remotest part of the earth. And it's not an either. Choose one of them. Um, Today, we're going to feed the need, having an impact in our community. We're also going to pack shoeboxes, having an impact around the world. It's all of that together because it's what Christ commissioned us to do and gave us his presence to do, and it brings glory to him. So what are some next steps for today's message? Evaluate your priorities as they are revealed in your calendar and your budget. Does the Great Commission show itself up in your calendar and your budget? I don't know what that means for you specifically. I don't know how you serve, but I know God wants every one of his people to be involved in what he's asked us to do. And it has nothing to do with this building. Refocus your attention for the future on on the hope of God's glory and his rule. Are you investing in that with your hope for the future? Or is the hope for the future a little bit nicer house? New Honda Ridgeline. That's on my horizon. Is that my hope? Or is my hope that maybe Fellowship Bible Church will be so on fire that the spirit will move. People will fear the Lord in such a way that we are participating in the Great Commission across the room, across the street, and around the world in ways that just blow people away. Today, we're going to remind ourselves of the message that we have. This glorious message that we have is a message of redemption. Irena talked about it. She got a gift. People loved on her. But the thing that changed the direction of her life is what we're going to remember today. That Christ came. He took on flesh. And as the expression of Israel's Messiah, he came and surprised everybody when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords took on flesh and then died for us. That's what we're going to remember today. And it's what I'm going to ask you to say as you come forward here. Are you committed to taking this message of the incarnation, the death of Christ, his victory in the resurrection? Are you committed to making that a priority in your life? And honestly, if you are, let's come down here and be a part of this meal that celebrates that. And if you're struggling with it, maybe you need to stay in your seat. And maybe you need to say, I'm not sure I'm totally committed. And then ask the Lord, why? What's going on in your life that would keep you from that? Father, I pray that this very focused message of Haggai um, would not cause guilt. But Lord, I pray that it would cause deep thought. Um, I pray that it would cause um, reflection about our lives and our priorities. And Father, I pray that um, as we started, 
that joy would come out of this as we reorient and orient ourselves to your purposes in our life. You're with us. Help us do what you asked us to do. Amen.